Welcome to a championship week edition of the Trojan Talk podcast. You know it by now, but I'm still going to tell you. I'm Ryan Young. He's Max Brown, the former quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst. Max, how goes it? It goes great. A little short week, but it, like you said, championship week. Coming off a big rivalry win. It's been uh, been an entertaining season, and so far... Uh, a clean loss column, which I got to like, and hopefully USC can uh, continue that this week. Even in a, in a wonky, wacky, condensed, shortened, disrupted, unusual season, I think it still matters to play in a conference championship game and, and to win a conference championship. And so I, I think we have real stakes this week. I think it matters. I think it's cool. We're going to really break down that dramatic, wild, momentous, fun win over UCLA. We're going to talk about the... Wild, wacky news of the day as USC gets its championship game opponent switched on a Monday. And we're going to preview that matchup now with Oregon. Not with Washington, but with the Oregon Ducks. But first, breaking news on the podcast. I have a new promo for you guys. This, this is hot off the presses. Just came to me from Rivals. I'm excited to push it out. Everyone knows it's the early signing period this week. On Wednesday, kids will start signing their letters of intent. As we know, most kids now do sign in the early signing period as opposed to February. So it'll be an eventful week. You can get a free trial that starts now or in an hour or whenever you sign up and will last all the way until January 29th. So pretty much taking you through the end of the recruiting cycle and through the end of the USC football season. And... I always say it. It's a free trial. There's no strings attached. There's no reason not to jump on. If you want to do it, the promo code is USCNSD for National Signing Day. USCNSD. There will be links all over TrojanSports.com on the homepage, so we make it very easy for you. We've had a lot of... uh, a lot of the people jumping on board this last month. I, I can sense the fever and the, and the excitement, so join in. And just to give you uh, one last plug as to why you should, we've been killing it on the recruiting coverage front, bringing you exclusive interviews just in the last two days with five-star DN Corey Foreman. I went out to Corona and did a nine-minute video interview with before his decision this week. He's going to sign Wednesday but not announce until January 2nd during the All-American Bowl TV special. Four-star cornerback Sierra Wright, same thing, announcing in January. And then an in-depth interview with four-star QB Jackson Dart out of Utah, who kind of becomes the headline story of the day Wednesday as USC and Arizona State look to be the finalists for him. And obviously in a very, very important get for the Trojans since they've lost Jake Garcia. So we have exclusive interviews with all those guys. Use the free trial. Get on board. USCNSD is the promo code. All right, Max, you know, uh, USC wins 43-38 over UCLA Saturday in the Rose Bowl. They're down by as many as 18 in the second half. They're down 12 at the end of the third quarter. And it's just another typical USC comeback. And I say typical because we've done this three out of five games now. It's becoming kind of the calling card of this team. Um, What was your feeling coming off that game Saturday night? Yeah, I think to that point right there, I thought it was great to see USC, I mean, finish these comebacks. That's been a common narrative we talked about after the Arizona wins is, hey, those were games a year ago that USC probably loses. This year they're finding a way to win, which um, oftentimes isn't like a statistical thing you can measure, 
but it's huge for your culture. And people that have been in a football locker room know what I'm talking about. When there's that belief system, when there's that, um, I guess, no sense of panic when you get down, that's huge for a program because I think younger programs, programs that are not elite, when they get punched in the mouth, they start freaking out. It's a snowball effect, and we haven't necessarily seen that with USC this year. They've uh, stuck at it, and obviously you don't want it to be a close game. Every game, those are the types of games that you want USC to win handedly, I think, to get to that next phase, but it's rivalry week, so a win's a win. But uh, overall thoughts, I thought uh, – if this was a UCLA podcast, I think we would have walked away from that game saying that was the blueprint UCLA needed to win that game. And what do I mean by that is offensively, I love the game that Chip Kelly called. I thought he kept Todd Orlando off balance. I thought a lot of the pressure schemes we saw that worked against um, a Utah or weeks prior that you that, that the USC defense had got a lot of momentum with. I felt like the tempo of UCLA, the different formations, the different concepts really kept the USC uh, defense off balance. I mean, Chip did quarterback runs, uh, traditional run plays, outside zone plays. He did bunch formation. He used the tight end a bunch. They did traditional pass concepts. They did RPOs. They did everything. The playbook was deep for UCLA. And we talked about that coming into the week because I, I thought that was something. I thought that that was the game plan UCLA needed to uh, to keep the defense off balance. So credit UCLA in that regard. That came as no surprise to me that that was Chip's game plan. And I think it worked uh, worked well. And obviously that UCLA's offense had a big day and they were in a position to, to win the game. I thought offensively for uh, for USC, once again, a very kind of predictable narrative in the sense that UCLA did some things I thought they would do. I thought they had enough talent to make things interesting um, at times. And I also think the slow start by, by Keaton Slovis early on in the first quarter, like that was the recipe UCLA needed to get in this ball game. And, and to that extent um, was, was good on the Bruins. But hey, this is a USC podcast. I felt like the offense responded well after that. Uh, and and shoot once again the big playability of this offense showed its head and showed to be crucial. I think at times we can be very critical of the the short yardage struggles and why why are we not able to run the ball and all that. But the flip side of that is when you are a more pass friendly offense and you do have air raid tendencies and you are spread wide open. Uh, when your team needs momentum and your team needs big plays, that's where this offensive scheme is awesome. I think we saw that firsthand. I mean, those old Lane Kippen offenses, at times, those were hard to get momentum plays. They were hard to get big play abilities and kind of one strike flip the momentum of the game. That's not the case with Graham Harrell's offense in the best way possible. And I felt like the offensive scheme was, for how critical we've been throughout the year, it was very nice to have a air raid-ish offense to to pick the team uh, out of a deep hole in that ball game. You're totally right. And from the UCLA perspective, it had to feel like a major missed opportunity. And if this was a UCLA podcast, we'd be talking about the incredible what if. What if they had just won this game? What would that do for the Chip Kelly era? They'd be 4-2, and two, a chance to yep. maybe go 5-2, and two, having beaten – uh, ranked unbeaten USC team in the crosstown rivalry. I think it changes the entire offseason narrative for that program. But this is not a UCLA podcast, and they can worry about that. Uh, from our, our standpoint, <laughs> what, what I liked after the game, in contrast to previous weeks, was, and I'm, and I'm sure it's mainly because of the rivalry component, but there was real contentment and enjoyment from the fans. And 
I was on the message board all game as always, and it was, uh, as usual, very a lot of frustration, a lot of uh, Clay Helton criticism, a lot of hand-wringing. And then I saw a pivot that I wasn't expecting after the game where it was like, you know what? It always feels good to beat UCLA. Let's enjoy this. And I saw that on Twitter, and it was refreshing because we just came off a week, the previous week, where they had a 25-point win, and the fan base was apoplectic. And, and yeah. there, was, there was no celebrating a 25-point win over Washington State. And yet in this game where they put themselves in a major jam, and there's certainly plenty to pick apart, they do win, and there was – there was some ability to enjoy it from the fans. So that was good. Max, I want to get your insight on this. This this comeback mentality, the easiest, most simplest way to say it is that they just never give up and they just always believe they can come back. And that's obviously that's obviously the the overall summation. But we heard Amon Ross St. Brown and Graham Harrell talk on Monday about the culture and Graham Ram challenged the guys at halftime and said, our culture is going to carry us back in this. And that's a very nebulous, intangible term that gets thrown around a lot. As best you can, try to explain to us how that factors in in games like this and why a game like Saturday was different for this 2020 Trojans team versus what would have happened in 2018 during that 5-7 and seven season. Yeah, it's a good question. And you mentioned culture. It is a word that's thrown around every sport, and it's it has kind of an arbitrary meaning a little bit. But when I hear you, uh, when I hear you say culture, the word that sticks out to mind is just belief. And I feel like this year there's a there's a belief system in place um, as a result of a few factors. I think last year there was a lot of newness to this offense. I mean, right? Obviously, it was Graham's first year, so a lot of the air raid tendencies were new to everyone in USC system. You weren't used to being able to do something like we saw in the last drive of drive down in two plays and, and, and get a touchdown. I also think there's a reason experience is so important, not only in football, but especially in college football, because you get in those scenarios and you're not having guys that are wide eyed. You're not having guys that are looking around for someone else to make a play. You have guys that have the confidence to say, Hey, I can go make a play. And I mean, at every single position you talk about, an offensive line group who's, I mean, a lot of those guys, just about all those guys have played a lot of football. You talk about Keen Slovis, he's not a true freshman. So when he gets the ball in his hands late game, it's it's time to go make something happen, not a, hey, can I just hang on? You have a receiver group that's old, that's going to be playing on Sundays, that I think you, you just you just look around and, and that stuff matters. And I think when you look at the big-time programs, it's programs that have that belief system, oftentimes have that experience. And even if they don't have the experience, they have a culture in place where guys – when they're younger, can visually watch other guys play and that swagger and that confidence and and, and it kind of builds upon each other. And so while it's important for guys like a, uh, an Amon Ross St. Brown and a Tyler Vaughns to go out and make those plays, you better believe that the guys right behind them are watching those things. Uh, a, a John Jackson, a, a Brew McCoy. I mean, we saw Gary Bryant get in there uh, late in that game, but a guy like himself of watching that happen and uh, that to me is important, and I think a little bit of the the Graham Harrell mo is 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 where is is rubbing off in the best way possible with this offensive. I mean, Graham's got an edge to him, I and mean, we've talked about it a little yeah. bit. It's re- it's refreshing because Clay doesn't have that, right? Clay, it's always the sun is always shining, and then Graham's a little bit of he'll tell you how it is kind of thing. Yeah, right. And and I think 
there's an element of that's healthy, right? Where it's, all right, screw it. A minute left in the game. Let's drive down the length of the field. And obviously they got the return. But I think that mentality of we can score, give us the ball and we can score on any given play, it just trickles down. And we also talked about it last week of uh, it felt like in years past, especially last year, it felt like the offense had to drive the car every single time. And it was the defense that's always coming on. You're having to pull them along a little bit. This year, I know the defense didn't have a great game uh, necessarily against UCLA, but it feels like it's more of a team-oriented system where special teams, defense, or offense can make the game-changing play. It's not just the offense. In years past, it feels like maybe the special teams is the Achilles heel for USC, and it's not the case this year as we've seen last week. So all three phases coming together, and there's that system of belief that allows guys to, uh, in late-game situation, uh, have the confidence that they can go make a play. Yeah, that's how I see it too. I, I think the important thing is that it seems to be pervasive throughout the roster where everyone has that belief. Because I, I think if you have a few guys who are minded in that way, but the rest aren't, the rest are just beaten down by a season like maybe happened in that five and seven campaign two years ago, then you, it's just these things aren't possible. You have to have everyone believing in it. And the moment I point to, and I think there's been a moment maybe not in the Arizona game, but definitely in the ASU game where I thought, well, there's no coming back from this. And that moment in this game was in the third quarter, USC had just scored back-to-back touchdowns to get the 28-23. They have, the, they have this, this fresh momentum going. You feel like this is their chance to strike. They get the ball again, and that third and 10 pass flutters off Amon Ross St. Brown's hands, gets intercepted. And on the very next play, UCLA gets a 69-yard touchdown to its tight end, Greg Dolchich, who's just wide open behind the defense. And that back-to-back sequence, I just feel for so many teams, would have been the, we we just climbed this mountain to get back in this game. And in an instant, in a heartbeat, it's just, we're back in this hole again. And now we're down 12 at that point. And I, and I kind of thought Saturday, and I guess I should have learned from earlier this season, I kind of thought that that might be the game right there. And it just wasn't. This team comes back. We're going to get into some of the key moments in the comeback. Obviously, Keaton Slovis. But I forgot last podcast to give out game balls. No one got game balls for that 25-point <laughs> win. I'm sure they were sitting there all week going, who's getting game balls? Game ball? We won by 25 points. Well, we are not going to make that mistake again, Max. We're going to start right now with our game balls from Saturday. Offense, defense, who you got? Offense. Man, I want to give it to the whole position group for the receivers, but that's that's cheating. I'll give it to... I'll give it to Keaton. Uh, I think uh, oftentimes we can kind of gloss over, especially as USC fans, we're used to high-level quarterback play. But when you look at it's been a short season, but you look at early on the Arizona games, we were critical of Keaton. Even though he made some big-time throws, you felt like he could uh, tap into a higher ceiling. I, I feel like that's still the case. But you look at his performance, the ability to bounce back from a couple interceptions, still put up big numbers. And then in the late-game situation where, hey, there's a minute left, you got to drive your team down and win this game uh, to make those audibles late in that game. I think it speaks to his confidence, um, his trust in the system, the relationship he has with Graham and kind of this whole offensive structure and the trust that they put in number nine. So offensively, I'm going with Keaton Slovis. And in large part, I mean, you look at the receiver group, I believe it was one, two. I mean, all three receivers had had big time days. They're not having that without number nine. So love the development and how he's progressed the past couple of weeks, especially. We've just kind of normalized, or, or he's, he's normalized, these 
crazy passing numbers where he throws for 344 and five touchdowns. And he did have the two picks. The one, obviously, again, was was uh, the drop by St. Brown. The other one was bad. But 344 and five touchdowns, and that's, like, not the main talking point of the game. That's just another day for Keaton Slovis. So yeah. very deserving. I'm going to go a different direction, though, and, and maybe uh, maybe I'm forcing it. But I just thought that's the best Tyler Vaughn's has played all season. He came up big I so like many it. times. Eight catches for 128 and the touchdown. Obviously, he has the uh, just the, just the beautiful 38 yard touchdown reception from Keaton, where he he has a step on this guy. The ball's a little past him, and he just kind of fully extends and catches it and crashes into the end zone. Beautiful play. Then, of course, the 35 yard catch on the penultimate play before the game winning touchdown which is just a prototypical Tyler Vaughn's play where he's twisting and turning and uh, an acrobat near the sideline to hold that ball in with two defenders near him and, and not drop it. And he just, uh, it's been said many times, but it's not an original thought. He's had some drops over the years on some more routine plays, but he always seems to catch those really tough sideline balls where it's just, it's his forte. So I'm going to shout out Tyler Vaughn's because he's the most under-heralded guy on this star-studded offense, and I thought that without him on Saturday, they don't come back and win. So shout-out to Tyler Vaughn's. Defense, Max. Defense. One last little point on TV. I think, uh, yeah, one, it's cool, kind of full full circle moment for him. Kid from Pasadena, brother on the other. The other team, we talked to him in the postgame conference, and he kind of alluded to that of how a special moment that that, that kind of was for him just big picture-wise. And I'm sitting here thinking, like you, you mentioned, the, the unheralded nature of Tyler Vaughn's. For USC fans listening, it's going to be interesting to see where, where Tyler Vaughn's kind of falls in the, the USC history outlook because where I'm coming from with that is five years from now, I think in many respects he's going to be a guy that's going to go kind of unnoticed or unremembered. And I don't say that in a malicious way, but I think – for where he stands when it's all said and done in some of these record books compared to how household of a name he is, I'm glad you highlighted him because oftentimes we can he goes underappreciated because of an Amon Ross St. Brown or a Drake London, but he's a special guy and we'll have a we'll have a shot on Sundays for sure. And my, one of my former teammates, so happy for TV. But uh, in terms of defensively, who do I got defensively? I mean, I gotta I, right. I can't I can't try to I can't try to spin it. I gotta give it to Tal Nohu Funga. Got I mean, you. it's so. Such a special player. I mean, even just a very basic five-yard out from uh, from the UCLA team, he just jumps that. I mean, uh, Dorian Thompson-Robinson's just a half-beat late, which is a cardinal sin for a, a quarterback on an out route. But in a veteran safety in Talano Funga, I mean, makes him pay. And those are the game-changing plays. I mean, in many respects, UCLA outplayed USC in this game, but it's because of these home run plays, the turnovers right there, the big plays by Drake London, the big plays by Tyler Vons that kept this USC team in it. And that's a luxury that we haven't really seen in years past from a USC defense is being able to count on game-changing plays for them. Talanoa gets, I mean, four straight weeks, four interceptions. He's a stud. Looking forward, I mean, him looking, his outlook moving forward, I mean, his position, the ability to be a safety body, but be able to hang in the box as well. I mean, in 2020 football with these spread offenses and passing attacks, I mean, he's going to make a lot of money someday if he can stay healthy because such a luxury to have a player like that, versatile, versatile and uh, 15's a stud. And I think USC, USC fans, we've known that. The nation is now getting put on notice as well. Yeah, I mean, there's times where you just know that you are watching a special player 
come through a program who's going to be re- remembered for a long time and go on the great things. And it's, it's how I felt with Pittman last year. Uh, it's definitely how I feel with Talanoa. I think that uh, I would just tell everyone to appreciate him now. I don't know. I'm not sure if he's going to leave after this year, but you have to think that his stocks will be pretty good, and maybe he will with his injury history. So cherish these last few games. But 17 tackles, the interception that should have been a pick six, if not for a bad block in the back by my guy, Nick Figueroa. Gosh dang it. Uh, two tackles for loss. Got to clean those up. The, well, the block in the backs. But, uh, yeah, just a, just a huge game all around for Hufanga, and no surprise, uh, the obvious game ball winner. Okay, let's go back to the comeback. I'm going to bounce around a little bit, but I want to start with the end. I want to start with Keaton Slovis, and it was revealed to us in the post-game press conference that he had called audibles in the last two plays and, and checked out of whatever was designed and saw a favorable matchup with Tyler Vaughn's down the right sideline, throws that ball up there for him, boom, 35-yard reception. You're now inside the 10. And the very next play was a design run play, and he checks out of that and throws the the fade to the left side of the end zone to Amon Ross St. Brown, almost identical to the, the one they connected on the previous week against Washington State. But uh, a lot was made by Clay Helton about uh, Keaton's poise and confidence to make those those changes. Uh, it was kind of it was a fun exchange in the post game press conference, where Clay goes, I, "I was a little nervous when he called the fade, but you know," and and Keaton goes, "It it, it worked. I'm I'm sorry, I probably scared coach here." He goes, "It's okay, I, you'll do it again." <laughs> and they were just going yeah. back and forth and laughing. But we talked to Graham Harrell on Monday about that, and he had some great perspective. I, I asked him, I said. At what point did Keaton gain that latitude to be able to to do that whenever he saw an opportunity? And Graham said, since day one, he's had that uh, that ability. That's that's part of our offense. He goes, but last year, what would happen was he would he would make a check and and call and switch the play, and then doubt himself and 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 come back to the sideline and go, should I have done that? Was that okay? And Graham goes, well, you threw for a touchdown, so yeah, it was, it was probably okay. Or, uh, or he'd check out of a play and he wouldn't throw a great ball and he'd say, well, I just, I, I was kind of second-guessing myself. I wasn't sure. And Graham said, what we see now from Keaton is that it's just total confidence. Like he, he knows what he, what he sees, he trusts it, and knows what he wants to do. This is where we're going to really lean on your insight as someone who's played the position. Take us through those last two plays, what you think he saw pre-snap and – what you thought of those two decisions? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty confident that uh, from what I can see on the TV copy to try to piece this together, and it'll be fun for those of you guys that watched uh, my breakdown from last week, yes. talking a lot about the uh, the man coverage and the fades. That was, I mean, it showed its face again on those, on those drives. I mean, you get a favorable man look, and he um, audibles to the go route and makes it happen. But uh, two things I want to highlight. And the first one, I don't mean to be the Grinch, but just so we have uh, kind of our football terms down, like Clay's going to say audible, I view this more as an alert. So an audible to me is changing the entire play, more Stanford-esque, where you are going to the line with two separate plays, and if you audible to the second play, you are like changing everyone's responsibility. I put this more in the classification from what I'm seeing, and I could be wrong, but I'm confident what I'm, what, what I'm about to say. I put this more in the alert classification where – 
that everyone's uh, the offensive line stays true to what their responsibilities are. The top of the screen was Amon Ross St. Brown. He's still running his concept. But uh, Keaton Slovis, and if you go back and watch the the YouTube replay, you can see Keaton Slovis gives a little peace sign at the bottom of his uh, right hip. Tyler Vons gives a little head nod, and and I'm assuming it was either a slant route that was changed to a fade ball, or if it was a a comeback that was changed to a fade ball, but it's kind of just changing that one route. And the reason he's changing that route is, uh, like I said, he had man coverage. So UCLA... I don't like the defensive call. I think when you're in midfield to sell out and put a bunch of guys in the box and put your corners on an island, like that to me is the dream scenario for Graham Harrell because you get favorable man coverage, one-on-one matchups, and um, you're given a, a shot to make a play downfield. And if it's an incomplete pass, like that's fine. It only it only runs five seconds off the clock versus if you went more cover three, cover two, even traditional kind of cover four, that fade ball on the outside is not as easy to convert. You It lends its hand to more kind of intermediate passes. And with intermediate passes, yes, the clock might stop on a first down, but it's, it, it gets going right after that. And it's just not as easy on the, the USC offense. So was a little interesting in that call, but credit, I mean, if you're UCLA's defensive coordinator, you're not thinking that, hey, a quarterback's going to go for the home run shot. So he kind of rolled the dice there a little bit. So I kind of see both sides. It's fun to kind of nerd out on the football strategy. But at the end of the day, UCLA said, uh, we're expecting run uh, at, at that scenario, expecting USC to kind of play semi-conservative, play for a field goal, which I think a lot of teams wouldn't do. Not Graham Harrell. Got to credit Graham Harrell. Got to love up. We got to give credit where credit's due. This and Keaton Slovis with this uh, aggressive offensive mentality, and 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 Keaton goes that alert on that play, and they uh, they win the one on one matchup. At the end, it looked like double coverage, but that's just the safety coming over there to try to make a play, and um, that's on the quarterback to to make sure he uses his eyes. Uh, and to look the safety off there. So that was that one play. L- love all, everything about it. Credit everything, everyone on USC side for making it happen. On the second play, uh, this is where it gets a little bit more nuanced. I mean, you have 26 seconds left in the game. The ball was about on the eight or nine yard line, I believe. So a lot of different things you can do. I think right when that play was happening, uh, to me, I thought they would run left and then if they don't get a first down or don't get a favorable game, uh, spike the ball and then kick the field goal for the win. That's the mentality I would have done. Uh, in hindsight, uh, I, I love Graham Harrell's move. I think I was wrong. I love what he did because, once again, UCLA pa- uh, packs the box. They have eight guys in the box, which means you have one-on-one coverage on the outside and you have a safety over the top. Well, one-on-one coverage outside, I mean, that's like seven-on-seven. Seven. That's like a little uh, – uh, some some drill work right there for Amon Ross St. Brown. If you're Keaton Slovis, give him a shot. Just don't throw, don't underthrow it. You can't underthrow it and, and allow the, the defender to, to make a play on the ball. He doesn't do that. Obviously, it was a touchdown. And then by throwing the ball there, the clock doesn't come into play with 26 seconds left, which is kind of sketchy a little bit. And you don't put the ball in a true freshman kicker's on, on his leg, but love the call by Keaton. Like Ryan said, it was a called run play. He still could have handed the ball off, but he had a favorable one-on-one matchup on the outside. He says screw it to the run play and uh, gives his best player uh, a chance to make a play. And once again, I started this start with this in the open. I think as USC fans, we were very critical of the, the short yardage scenarios and how our offense is not conducive to those type of scenarios. And we were totally fair in that criticism. But I also think we have to acknowledge that, 
hey, this is the beauty of why you go get Graham Harrell from North Texas is that in these late game scenarios, when you have to throw the ball, when you want to throw the ball, when you want to have an aggressive mentality, man, is it nice to have air raid principles versus if this was 2013 Lane Kiffin and you're running under center, a lot of eye formation type things, it's an awful lot harder to have this downfield passing attack be part of your uh, your DNA. So uh, just kind of two sides to that as well and, and fun to nerd out on. And maybe that's uh, maybe that'll be the, the breakdown this week, but I guess I just did the whole breakdown right there. So I'll have to look for something else. <laughs> Oh, well, I mean, hey, if, if you guys have not been watching Max's weekly video breakdowns on Wednesdays, I don't know what's wrong with you. And I mean that, <laughs> I mean that in the most critical way possible because you're missing out. Uh, I thought hey, last I'm glad you're liking them. Yeah, no, I thought last week's was the best. Yeah, this is not even a, me being a salesman. I thought it was the best of the season. And I just, you know, I've watched football my whole life, but I don't know it like someone who played at the level you did. And so I learned – Every time when I watch it, I learn so much about the nuances of each play. And if you haven't watched them, that's what Max does. Is He's not just telling you what happened. He's telling you why it happened. He's telling you what the offensive concept is, what it's designed to do, what the options are, what the defense is trying to do with its alignment, and and how things turn out the way they do based on how things break down. So um, whatever we, we do this Wednesday, I would encourage you to watch it and go back and watch the previous ones. It's great stuff. That was great, Max. I want to let Clay Helton off the hook here. He didn't say audible. He said, checked out of the play. Uh, I said audible. And see, that's why we have you here, because I'm constantly learning. I need to be kept in check myself. Hey, but even then, even then, like, and I get why Clay said it. I mean, I I probably would have said the same verbiage in, in, in his mind. But just so fans know, like, when you watch Sunday Night Football and it's Aaron Rodgers, like he is full on checking out of plays and changing the liter like the entire call for all eleven men. I don't put that into this classification, but it's still a very impressive to have the balls in a rivalry game on the road to make that call. Shows his experience, and I mean credit Graham. He instills that confidence in in Keaton, and uh, good good little alert. I'll call it a alert audible, I guess by uh, by Slovis. It really this this whole narrative that's developed this season of just picking apart Keaton each week, and obviously, I mean, we've all seen the, the fluttering balls. I know there was a couple more in this game, but it just led to this this uh, abject underappreciation for what he's still doing and just how valuable it is to have a guy who, in every late game situation, operates like this. Like it's it's almost it's like clockwork. Uh, the team's down, back against the wall. There's there's no leeway. There's no leash. He's got to perform, and every single time he does. And to me, that will just consistently outweigh any other criticism or nitpick that people find or throw at, at him this season. Maybe it's not the same as last year, but, man, I don't know. It's, it's a results-oriented game, and, and he's uh, been a major, major reason for the results in the 5-0 start. Without a doubt. So let's, uh, again, I told you I was going to jump around in this comeback, and I'm not sure there's going to be any rhyme or reason to it, but uh, what's at top of mind. So let's go back to right before those two passes. It's important to note, and maybe it's overlooked because they scored so quickly, but USC had no timeouts left when they got the ball back. Uh, I think the kickoff was with 52 seconds left. Uh, there was no timeouts. And Gary Bryant has the big 50-plus yard return across midfield. And his his first truly electric moment in the USC uniform, 
And if you listen to this podcast or if, you've, if you're on our message board, that's a guy that I've been hyping up since the day he signed because I saw him play at camps. I saw him at the All-American Bowl. And every time I watched him, he just popped on the field. He's just so f- fast, for one thing, but but just gracefully and naturally fast where he just kind of glides on the field and just always seems to be in open space. And I thought that he would be have a real chance to be an instant impact on the offense as a true slot weapon that they don't otherwise have. Obviously, they have Drake London and what he does, which is so nuanced and, and special, but they don't have that just typical smaller receiver who's just a burner, who's just uh, elusive. It's kind of what they – I said this on previous podcasts in the last year. It's kind of what everyone wanted Bayless Jones to become, and this has never happened. Well, Gary Bryant is that guy, and it's going to happen for him. I can just tell you that. It's going to happen. It hasn't happened on offense this year. But I also thought from the day he signed, I'm like, they've got to get him on kickoff returns. Like They've had sure-handed guys back there in the past couple of years with just don't have the same kind of upside to break big runs. And it just is what it is because, I mean, and the facts are the facts that hasn't happened. Obviously, uh, Velas had some of those, but, but otherwise. And I just thought Gary is the most natural fit for that role. If he's not going to be a big offensive contributor, at least make him a focal point on kick returns. And they finally started to work him in in recent weeks, and then he gets the chance to break one, and it's just the biggest moment. And just think if, if they take a touchback there and they're at the 25, you're not going – 75 yards with no timeouts, you're probably settling for a field goal with a freshman kicker who already missed one earlier in the game. And as special as we think Parker Lewis is, that's a big moment for a freshman who's already got one miss in his head. So that kickoff just cannot be overstated for its importance in that game. Without a doubt, credit everyone involved. I mean, from Gary Bryant, who, yeah, Ryan, you've been high on him since... I mean, a year ago uh, before, I mean, he was even in a, a USC uniform. And for him to come in and make a play, it was great. I also think credit, I mean, Sean Snyder. I mean, the past couple years, we've talked about special teams. And anytime you're talking about special teams, oftentimes it's in a negative light because you almost want those guys to go unnoticed in some respects because it means they're not making mistakes. And this year, it's been pretty, uh, pretty clean. And I also think, I don't know how much uh, Snyder played a role in this, but I mean, the two big impact players are both true freshmen. So instilling confidence in those guys and, and Parker Lewis and Gary Bryant in terms of, I mean, it's a game-changing play. And if you go back and watch the telecast, the broadcaster is saying, oh, should have fair caught it, should have fair caught it, which I think that's a fair criticism at the time. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and obviously it was a big-time play. But, I mean, credit Sean for, uh, I mean, doing what he's doing. And then Gary Bryant trusting his own skills and, and making a play right there. And that changed the entire course of that drive. So, um, that certainly was big time. And in terms of Gary Bryant's outlook moving forward, I think right now he's just kind of at the liberty of the depth chart. And right now with, yeah. um, I mean, I'm very careful with the words or like I say air raid tendencies, but the big difference with this offense is that Eric Cromanoke and these tight ends get a lot more run versus if you were at an Arizona or Wazoo, that wouldn't be the case. And Gary Bryant would be that fourth piece. He would be that other slot receiver. And so uh, we'll see what happens with Tyler Vaughns and Amon Ross St. Brown moving forward. But Expect Gary Bryant to be in there looking ahead and not getting ahead of myself too much. But if both those guys were to leave, uh, I think Bryant's definitely more of a true slot receiver. And so how does that impact Drake London or whatnot? But 
as we all know, USC's great at the receiver position, and I think the depth chart uh, depth chart will dictate how fast Gary's career gets off the ground. Yeah, I mean, the two guys on this team that I would not want to have to tackle in open space are Keenan Christian and Gary Bryant. And <laughs> so the, true. The, the minute I saw that Gary had that much room around him, I thought, okay, this could be special, and it was. And and to your point on Sean Snyder, it's it's cliche to say it, but but the what you always say is, uh, ideally, you're not talking about the special teams. That means they're, they're doing their job. And unlike previous years, where it was a weekly talking point, it really hasn't gotten a lot of attention. And, and maybe it should get more because it's been a pretty solid unit. And he's definitely done what he was hired to come in and do. But uh, let's get through the other storylines of the games that we can talk about this week. We we got to focus on the USC rushing attack, obviously as it got just all the attention coming off the Washington State game where they had five net rushing yards, really 25 yards and 16 carries by the backs. As much as the coaches tried to dismiss and downplay the criticism last week, it seems like they made a concerted change in their approach to come out and lean heavily on a lead back, which they haven't done all season. Avai Malapai gets 19 carries, goes for 110 yards and a touchdown, over five yards of carry, the first 100-yard rushing game of the season for a USC back. Stephen Carr gets seven carries, and Marquis Stephen Keenan Christian get one each. So that was a major shift from this congested committee approach we've seen week after week. And against Washington State, none of those backs got more than five carries. No one got a chance to even get going. And so I, I'm going to say that's not a coincidence that coming off their worst rushing game of the season, they – mix things up. I was surprised. Well, I, I'm sure you know I'm surprised that Marquis Step wasn't more featured. Uh, but I, I know the staff loves Vi. And and just to confirm that, we talked to Clay Helton on Monday morning, and he said we knew going into the game that it was going to be 29-7. And I asked him if Marquis Step was fully healthy, and I didn't get an answer. But I think the answer was that yes, and that they just chose to truncate things down, and those were the guys they went with. And I'm sure seniority played the biggest factor in that. But what did you think of that shift in in strategy and approach? Yeah, you're right. There is uh, it's not a coincidence, and it has nothing to do with Clay or Graham. It has everything to do with the opposing defense. And Graham said this uh, since the day he's been here. It's an execution based offense. Well. Every offense is execution-based, but what he means by that is it's an offense that is going to take what the defense gives them versus a Stanford. Stanford's going to run right at you no matter what you do defensively. That is their MO. Washington's kind of similar in that regard. Arizona and Washington State, they are going to pass all the time. Or I guess Arizona has a little bit more of a run flavor. Both schools have a little more run flavor uh, these days, but that is their MO versus with this USC team. We're all looking for an identity. We all want an identity to be the run game or identity to be the pass game, whatever it is. But the identity of this offense is that it's going to be multiple. It's going to beat you in different ways every single week. There's going to be a different key player there. And what happened is Wazoo came out in man coverage last week. Single high man coverage, packing the box with defenders. Well, that is not conducive to running the ball. And Wazoo got torched on the outside. So what happened? UCLA's defensive coaches were watching the film. They said, we gotta, we got to mix things up. Yes, we have better skill, but we got to mix things up defensively. And UCLA gave USC a lot more too high pictures, two safeties high, which means there's one less guy at least in the box, which means it's favorable to run the rock. And, oh, by the way, you have you have back your more uh, traditional offensive line, experienced offensive line. And so Graham's saying, hey, I'm not going to – 
reinvent the wheel. If they're giving me favorable runs, I like my running backs. I like my offensive lines. Let's hand the ball off and let's have the ground game be the MO for this game. So I, I don't think it's as much of a, hey, we got to balance it out after a poor rushing attack last week. I think it's literally just the flavor of the game. And that's going to be, as long as Graham Harrell is here at USC with Clay Helton as his head coach, this is going to be the flavor of USC, where one week we're going to be talking about the run game, one week we're going to be talking about the passing game, the next week we might be talking about passing game again, but it's all dictated on the the, the game plan that the defense brings to the park. And uh, I still am of the stance that the pass is going to open up the run, and I think that's how, that's how Graham Harrell views things, and that all else being equal, he wants to go through the air, but he's not going not gonna to force the issue. And Vavai, I mean... He's a guy, I'm biased because I played with the guy. He's a fantastic dude. I'll always root for him. But I think we do have to give credit if he's not necessarily uh, the, the sexiest of the running backs. He doesn't have the Stephen Carr kind of upside. He doesn't have the strength of the marquee step. But I think his patience and his vision and his um, ability to roll run, runs back in a way that's sometimes quicker than Marquis Step. Uh, I think that was on display there in terms of his patience, which is great. Uh, at the end of the day, all three backs I love. I think all three backs would have had success in that game. But it was Vi's turn to make some, make some noise. And uh, credit to nine for making that happen. Happy for a guy who's uh, a fifth-year senior to, to do that in a rivalry game. Yeah, and just, just to get a little more specific as to his impact – I talked about that pivotal moment where USC had the interception off Amon Ra's hands, and then UCLA comes right back with the 69-yard touchdown strike to make it 35-23. That next series was really Vi's series. He comes out with a 19-yard run up the gut, a little delayed run on first down, catches a 9-yard check down, and then has a 7-yard run up the middle, and then scores a touchdown on a 10-yard run up the middle. And and you're right. That I, I thought he showed really good vision on those plays, and it wasn't always maybe initially where he thought he was going with the ball, but he found he found the the lanes and the holes and capitalized. And that was a huge drive to give an immediate response and get them back in the game. Graham Harrell kind of doubled down on Monday in his <laughs> uh, disagreement with the focus placed on the running game and struggles at times. And it's for the very reasons you said. That, that was his whole point was that. Look, we're going to do what, what is out there, and so we're not going to fret about what we don't do. And he goes, I, I was surprised last week that Washington State didn't sell out against the pass. We, that's what we expected them to do. No, they, they kind of came out trying to stop the run. So, And it was, it was one of those brazen Graham quotes. He goes, that's how you get a lot of points hung on you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what happened. So I, I, I agree with him. I, I was on an island, not by myself, but – uh, kind of a small island last week and not being up in arms about the rushing struggles. And it's for that reason. And it is what it is. Now, this week, Clay Helton told us Monday that Vivai Malapai sprained his knee late in that game and was not able to practice Sunday and is very much in doubt for this week. And he told us he's already talked to Marquis Step and said there could be a huge opportunity for you this week. So that's an interesting wrinkle and storyline to keep in mind as we get more updates through the week and then see what happens on Friday. But it could it could be a marquee step show on uh, in the Pac-12 championship game. So we'll see. A couple more bits from the game. It, it was it was early on, and so it doesn't get the attention as some of the other big plays. But they were down 14-0 early when Drake London had his big 65-yard touchdown. That was 
you know, he got open on the seam. Uh, Keaton found him. But then it was the Drake London show where he is just avoiding, twisting, turning, pulling. That's escaping. become his patented play. It, it is. And it's it's like, it, you're right. It's, it's, it's always the same thing where he's just going to push, pull, twist, turn, whatever he has to do to get every last inch of that field. And he gets all the way to the end zone, breaking six or seven tackles, depending on your count. I've watched it a few times. <laughs> but it's, it's going to go right to the top of the Drake London highlight film, and that's why he's so special. And I, I think we made this point before, but maybe not. There's, there's a real dichotomy in his personality. He is the quietest, softest-spoken, humblest guy off the field. Like, almost to the point where you have to – turn the volume up because you, you, you can't really even hear him. He's just so soft-spoken. And yet on the field, he's just this terror. He's just He just unleashes everything when he's between the lines. And I know there's other guys like that, but it's just so pronounced with Drake that it always amuses me because I've sat in his living room. I've talked to him for over an hour. We've had many interviews. And then I see this guy on the field, and it's just not the same guy that I see uh, off the field. No, it's a good point, and I've uh, I don't know Drake uh, personally like, like like you do in that regard, but I, it makes sense just from afar. I think the one thing that I've had to switch my thought process in is, I mean, last year the big narrative was basketball player, basketball player. Every single time he caught a pass, it was oh yeah. he, he also plays basketball, and sure that still comes up, but I think when you think that, you think more of a longer, lanky and strength not being a strong suit, but he's straight up strong. I mean, you're not breaking those tackles. You're not having defenders um, brush off of you, five, six defenders, if you're not a strong, strong guy. And so that's one thing I know for me, I've had to switch my thought process of like, no, nah, he like I expect the broken tackle now. Now it's not just like a, a surprise. And I think it's very interesting moving forward what the conversations are like for Drake London because with how big his frame is, I think he easily could put on 15 pounds more and not lose that much speed and be an absolute force in the middle. He already is an absolute force, but even more so if he uh, kind of doubled down in that strength category, but that's more of an off-season conversation. But uh, no, he's a special player. And I mean, we've talked about how unique Tyler, uh, how, how great players Amon Ra and Tyler Vons are, but Drake London's just unique. I don't know if there's a team in the country that has a slot receiver weapon like Drake London, and it's an absolute luxury for Graham Harrell. Totally. Uh, two last very quick points. We have to move on to the Oregon game. So I just want to get your thought real quick on both of these. There was a lot of frustration among the fans on Twitter, on the board, when Clay went for two. Late in the third quarter, Amon Ra, three-yard touchdown. They're down 28-23. He goes for two to try and get it within three, but there's still obviously 19 minutes left. And if, you know, a kind of hung over the the end of the game if things had gone differently what was your thought on that decision to go for two at that point yeah a couple just outside thoughts I know a lot of coaches keep a predetermined two-point conversion chart or they have a GA that's in the in the booth and they have like a if you're down by this much you should should or should not go for two at uh, given how much time's left in the game so like based off just algorithm and whatnot, and so I'd be, I'd be curious if that was referenced at all. Obviously, you have to take into account momentum and the human element, but 
one little side point there. And one thing I also think that's underrated with the two-minute drills is how much you like your two-point play. If Graham's saying, hey, I'm seeing this. I know we're going to get this. I love this call. Let's go for it now. That's also a, kind of a kicker there. I'll keep this short, though. I don't mind the call. I think right there, if you get it, you're down three. Um, like That, to me, is more of an impact than if you just go for one. Yes, you get the points, but you're down four. In hindsight, sure, you wish they would have maybe gone for one to keep that game just as the game unfolded but I don't mind either two-point call I like to trust in uh, trust in your guys and if they got it and got within a field goal uh, I think that's a huge deal and so I don't mind the call very good and then we've not really talked about the defense as a whole we're not going to get too deep into it Um, obviously you know they give up a lot of yards there were some major breakdowns there was some bad tackling but what there was on the other side was the continuation of the identity that has developed for this unit that I'm highly encouraged by, which is being opportunistic and creating chaos in the backfield. We saw more sacks. We saw more tackles for loss. And we saw three more turnovers, which makes 11 turnovers in the last three games. And they're among the national leaders. It's really hard to track national leaders when everyone's played so many different number of games. But entering last week, USC was the only team that had played less than five games that was averaging, or the, the only team that had played at least four games that was averaging three turnovers per game. So you, you could have technically said they were leading the country in turnovers per game, but you know some teams have played 10, 11 games, and they had played four. Uh, now they've got 11 in the last three games, and I think we're seeing a lot of what we hope for out of Tyler Orlando. So just real quick thoughts on, on the defense and, and that point, if you can. Yeah, love the turnovers. I think it's yeah part of the identity. I'll keep this quick though. It's it's the it's the, the point I started with. I think Chip has had has laid the foundation for the base principles you need to beat this USC defense. In that, if you stay predictable, like Washington State is, right? They're going to stick in four receivers, four receiver sets. You kind of know what you're going to get. Utah, they're going to stick in a lot of two tight end sets. Run right, run left, play action. You know what you're going to get. When it's those teams, Todd Orlando can pin his ears back, knows exactly what to call, uh, and it's very he gets in the flow of the game versus Chip. He was throwing everything at Todd Orlando. Shotgun, uh, running back, receiver, felt moving all around, and I think that keeps a defensive coordinator off balance. And people forget that when you bring pressure, that means everyone else on the back end is having to adjust. It's putting linebackers in unique spots. It's putting safeties in unique spots. And I think when you have a deep playbook like Chip had, it can it can confuse SC guys a little bit, force them to, to play a little bit slower, force these pressures to not get home as quickly. I think we saw that uh, this past week. And having a deep playbook and mixing things up against Orlando, I think it's the way to go to slow down this uh, this pressure attack from the USC defense. Very good. Well, let's, let's focus forward now. It's announced on Saturday that USC is going to play Washington in the Pac-12 championship game. And yet there's considerable doubt already at that point that, hey, Washington just had to cancel its game with Oregon due to a COVID outbreak. Are they going to be ready by Friday? We go into the week. USC starts working on the game plan. They spend, according to Clay Helton, they spent Sunday totally focused on Washington. And the first part of Monday morning as well, they were going to start looking at Oregon at night and just to have a backup plan. But they spent a whole day plus on Washington. And then it's announced Around noon, a few hours after we talked to Clay Helton about it at length, the Pac-12 announces actually Washington's not going to have enough players. Uh, it's going to be Oregon. And then we talked to Jimmy Lake on the teleconference, Washington coach Jimmy Lake, 
And he says, well, right now we have zero available offensive linemen, which is obviously familiar to USC fans. And he goes, we couldn't even practice if we wanted to right now, which raises the question of what was the Pac-12 thinking on Saturday? Like, how did they think that this was going to get resolved in time to play uh, on Friday when uh, even Jimmy Lake was pretty clear, like, you know, this has usually been a two-game process for teams and we're just hoping that we can have some days with no positive test and get moving in the right direction. Uh, I think the Pac-12 deserves some criticism here for not making an executive decision on Saturday um, and having USC waste a day and a half, whereas Oregon now didn't even play last week and was probably fully focused on this very scenario and, and getting a jump start on planning for USC. Now, to Clay's credit, he made no excuses. He didn't make an issue out of it. He just said it's been a weird year. It is what it is. We're just happy to play. He said all the right things, but a lot of people who are not Clay have made the point that this is kind of a raw deal for USC, and obviously it's better to find out Monday than to find out Tuesday or Wednesday, but still, to lose a day on an already short week, I could see some frustration on the USC. And Max, what did you make of the way the Pac-12 handled this? Yeah, I don't disagree with anything you said. I think uh, some of those factors, though, just don't net out with me as extreme. And, and kind of where I'm coming from with that is, I guess I'm glad that the decision happened on a Monday, to your last point there. Like, this is a night and day different dynamic if it happened 24 hours from now. Because so often, those first that first day after a game, I know it's a shortened week, so the, the calendar's off a little bit, but that first practice back, like a traditional Monday practice, is oftentimes watching film from the past game, fixing those mistakes, uh, adjusting kind of your base principles and getting aligned on very fundamental mistakes that happen. And then you start dabbling a little bit about the next opponent, but it's not groundbreaking versus that next sure. practice, that ne- that uh, traditional Tuesday practice, that is when you are full-fledged going on to the next opponent. So I can't stress enough how important it was that this happened Monday at noon versus Tuesday at noon. Because at Tuesday at noon, you're gearing up for your main practice of the week. You're already game playing. Scout team is already in place all of those things. So don't get me wrong. It's still not ideal for a staff. Uh, They're going to be working through the night. I guarantee the GAs probably aren't going to sleep tonight, Uh, but I think they'll be fine. Yeah. I think to your point about Washington, I mean, if they they don't have any uh, linemen available, like that's, that's nothing new. You knew that news on Saturday. So it's too bad. They couldn't have got ahead of that, but I think uh, USC will be fine. We've said this all year. I think the COVID situation is conducive to a Graham Harrell offense because they kind of go to the park every single week with uh, a lot of the same complex, uh, uh, a lot of the same plays and whatnot. That's not the same case for offenses around the conference. So a luxury there, but I think uh, it's a steeper uphill battle for the defense, but they're fine. I'm just glad this didn't happen Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday because that would have been an absolute nightmare. Certainly not ideal, but I think uh, I think it's I think it's doable for USC. Well, let me ask you this, and, and those are all fair points. Do you think that Oregon is a better or worse matchup for USC? I think it's a worse matchup because I like their roster. Yeah, I like their ro- roster better. I think when you just if if you turn on the film and everyone was wearing gray jerseys with no numbers, I think talent wise, Oregon's just better. And so I think we saw that a little bit last week. Excuse me. So we saw it last week where 
I mean, UCLA was a more talented team and some defensively, especially than some of these other teams that USC has played. And I think at times you saw that with USC, uh, UCLA's athletes being able to hang with USC at times. Don't get me wrong, USC's never going to look across the ball and be intimidated by anyone in the conference. But I felt like UCLA was a step up, and I feel like Oregon's even more of a step up. And we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, they've definitely been hurt by a lot of their NFL guys opting out. But it's still a talented team, and I think Oregon is, uh, is a harder matchup. UW's run defense was not very good when you look back on that a little bit. And so uh, it's not groundbreakingly different, but Oregon's a, a worse matchup in my opinion. Well, let's start with the Ducks offense. Obviously, they lose Justin Herbert, who is having a great rookie season for the L.A. Chargers. They lose their entire offensive line as well, uh, including left tackle Penae Sewell, who opted out and will be a high first-round draft pick. And yet, they're not. Their production is not all that different from last year. They're averaging thirty-four point two points a game, which is down one point two points from where they were last season. Tyler Shuck has stepped in at quarterback. Eleven touchdowns, four interceptions. He's a mobile guy. Has rushed for two hundred and fifty-six yards, two touchdowns. Uh, they still have running backs. Max, what jumps out to you about this offense? How different is it with the the move from Herbert to Shuck, and and maybe just having a new offensive line that's still only played five games together. Yeah, so it's a similar vibe to me, uh, kind of across the board in a lot of these position groups. So when I kind of break them down, you're going you're gonna to sense a similar narrative. And what I mean by that is I feel like a lot of the guys they had to replace from last year's team, um, these replacements, they're good players. They're talented players, but it's just like a noticeable drop down. So you're not going to say, hey, they're struggling or this guy isn't good, but Tyler Shuck is no Justin Herbert. Tyler Shuck's a fine quarterback. He's a solid Pac-12 quarterback, but it's a noticeable kind of kind of step down. And I'll start with the coordinator. They went out and got Joe Moorhead, who, for college football fans, you'll know him from kind of the Saquon Barkley. Um, I'm blanking on that 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 uh, that, that quarter, the the, the Ravens State. backup. Yeah. Um, and so it's that type of offense, kind of a run first mentality. It's not the wide open spread. Uh, kind of attack every inch of the grass like we saw with the Chip Kelly Oregon days. And even he himself's kind of reinvented himself. But Shuck is solid. He's he he's not going to scare this defense. He's got some mobility to him. He's ran the ball 50 times, uh, and he's solid. I think running back-wise, they have a very similar fl- uh, flavor to USC. And what I mean by that is they have three guys that they really like. They have C.J. Verdell, who he's kind of the NFL guy. Uh, he's going to be, a, I believe... Uh, I haven't looked at ratings as of late, but he's a top five NFL back in, the, in this class. Uh, he's a speedster. He's sneaky strong and will run run you over. He's a special guy. He hasn't really gotten the mix that much or as much as I think Oregon Duck fans would have hoped, but he's a stud. And then Travis Dye is kind of their next man up, and, uh, and, and, and he's a great player as well. He's had five catches for like 200 yards they use him a lot in the, in the in the past game a little bit but he's a good little change of pace and then their third guy who you're going to see a lot who they really like and I kind of equate him to equate him to uh Marquis Step and not because of his physique but just more of his playing style he's their goal line back he's their short yardage run right at you and that's uh Cyrus Habibi Likio and so you're going to get Verdell, Dye, and Habibi Likio, all three guys in this game it's kind of a similar deal to USC as you don't know who's going to be the flavor of that week but uh that, that's kind of there. And at the receiver position, uh, I feel like this is where their weakness is. They do not have a guy that is a surefire NFL big-time playmaker. They have four guys that are hovering right around 200 yards. I mentioned Travis Dye already. They got Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red, and then uh, good old 
U.S. former USC <laughs> Devin Williams, who we all know, and as a, I mean, there's a reason Devin Williams transferred because he could not get on the field at USC. So that kind of gives you a, a gauge of where that position group is at. Uh, Micah Pittman's a, a name that USC fans will know. Michael's younger brother, he hasn't gotten the mix at much at all. I'm not sure if he's injured. I actually need to check back on that. But those are kind of the names there. Once again, Williams, Johnson, and Red, they're all good, very good college uh, football players. But I think they take, they take a solidified backseat to this USC group. Uh, I don't think they instill fear in you. And this, to me, is where if you're an Oregon fan – you need this is where you need to take the step up. You need some dudes on the outside to really get to that next level offensively, I think, and, and obviously quarterback as well. But um, the good group, but not great. And then offensive line wise, they lost tons of production, tons and tons of production. This is a good group of offensive line. This is where I mean, if you're you got to be wary of Oregon. The fact that they were able to replace five, I mean, legit dudes at offensive line and not take a huge step back. They took a step back, but not noticeable. It speaks to the program and yeah. what Cristobal has built because they're they're reloading now. Any other team in the Pac-12, USC included, if they had to replace five offensive linemen, they would be in, in deep trouble. Oregon is not like that. It's a step back. I'd expect Drake Jackson and these boys to put pressure on this group, but it's a solid offensive line. Excellent breakdown. Excellent. And flipping sides of the field, the defenses are where they, they really lost a lot of the guys through the opt-out process. They had three of their top defensive backs all choose to opt-out before the season. Actually, four, but one came back in Diamador Lenore. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I always do. No, you got that. That's, that's money. Boom. Money. Boom. But, but they, they lost uh, Javon Holland, Thomas Graham, and Brady Breeze. And this is a team that was second in the country last year in interceptions. They only have two this season, so they're feeling the loss of those guys. Overall, they were a stout defense last year, as USC fans know, giving up 16.5 points a game, 329 yards a game. Well, those numbers have jumped to 28 points a game, 419.8 yards per game. So that's where you see the difference, and that's why you have a 3-2 and two Oregon team uh, that started 3-0 and oh and then lost its last two games to Oregon State and Cal. On the defensive side, just not the same challenge USC ran into last year, which really did kind of mess with that offense. So that was otherwise humming second half of last season, aside from that game. I guess if you're uh, Graham Harrell or if just USC in general, what is your concern or your enticement in playing this defense? Yeah, once again, I don't know if there's a concern level. I think it would have been a different story if you had a lot of those NFL opt-out guys back playing and in the mix. Then you, then your concern would be, I guess you wouldn't even concern at that point, but you would be wary of this secondary. I mean, you touched on it, but just to highlight it, I mean, they had th four guys opt out or, uh, in total that aren't playing, three of which are in the secondary. Thomas Graham, their corner, Javon Holland, their nickel, and Brady Breeze, their safety. So as a USC fan, imagine losing Elijah Griffin, Talano Ufunga, and Isaiah Palomao and think about where the defense would be. I think USC would be fine. They'd, be, they'd survive, but it's certainly a noticeable step back. And once again, credit this Oregon program because they're able to replace guys and not have it be a – absolutely severe drop-off. But to me, defensively, the guy that every every national reporter is going to highlight on is, is Kayvon Thibodeau. I mean, the number one recruit a couple years back. I mentioned the point, if you had everyone dressed in gray uniforms with no numbers, kind of would you be able to, to notice things? And you would notice uh, Thibodeau. I mean, right. he is a special athlete on the edge. I remember when I played Oregon, 
uh, DeForest Buckner, who's obviously one of the best defensive linemen in the NFL right now. Like you noticed him walking off the bo- off the bus. Kayvon uh, Thibodeau, he plays a different position. He's more of a true edge rusher, but you notice he's a special, special athlete. Uh, he's active. You definitely have to account for him. But uh, my favorite position group for this Oregon defense is the linebackers. I think Noah Sewell, he's a youngster. Uh, he's going to be, I mean, if, if he can stay healthy, he's going to be a first-round NFL draft pick. And then Isaac... Hopefully I'm pronouncing this right. Slade Matuatia. Uh, Sounds great to me. Yeah. Um, he's their will linebacker. He's rangy. He's the, the only linebacker in the country that's returning that had both 60 tackles and double-digit pass breakups. And so the combination of both those guys, I think – they can hold up as good as any linebackers in terms of having to balance both, hey, the run attack and then also the air raid principle attack of kind of both sides for USC. So love the linebackers. And then I got to address Jordan Scott in the middle. He's been there forever. He was there when I was there. I don't even know how he still has eligibility. I think he, and then obviously with eligibility being frozen this year, he might be able to come back. But He's the big boy in the middle, single digit, very productive, hard to move. And uh, us SC fans, we know that that's kind of been the Achilles heel of this offense at times is pressure interior up the middle. Uh, Jordan Scott, you're not moving him. And so if he has a big game, that could that could wreak some havoc. But once again, this secondary is solid, but you, you notice the drop off a little bit. But uh, I love these linebackers. And that's even with uh, what's his face being uh, Justin Flo Justin Flo being out so um, Oregon doing some good things in terms of uh, recruiting and this year they've taken a step back but be wary of them moving forward for sure all right well it's prediction time Max Pac-12 championship Friday afternoon in the Coliseum Trojans versus Ducks who you got and why yeah I will go I will go through 31, I'll go 31-17 USC. I think Oregon's defense is going to give a similar flair to UCLA, I think, where they're able, to, they're going to be able to make some plays in the ball. They're going to be able to kind of mix some things up, and they have the, the, they have the talent and the skill to be able to mix things up, right? Wazoo, they, they, they don't have the luxury of being able to drop backers and drop defensive ends and, and bring different blitz packages. This Oregon team will be able to do that. I think it'll it'll be able to uh, result in some stops. And, I mean, it's crazy. I guess 31 points is still relatively uh, a, a, a good scoring day. But keep this offense at least somewhat in check. But 17 points. I think Tyler Shuck, he's good but not great. I think that's going to show its hand against a very good USC defense, opportunistic USC defense. And so USC gets it done. It's uh, an undefeated season uh, so far for USC, and they find themselves in the Fiesta Bowl. We're of a like mind. I have USC 34-24. I just got to think this team is riding so high right now after that UCLA win, and um, they've done it all season. And now that they're here at the desired end point, the goal, I just think that they're going to take care of business and, and finish this out. Max, great stuff. Again, everyone on Wednesday, we will have his uh, Max's in-depth whiteboard film room breakdown, which I cannot stress enough to you that there is nothing, there is nothing you are doing in your life that's more important than watching that. So yeah. I don't know just- about that, but in terms of football <laughs> content, uh, no, nah, it's good stuff. It's been fun doing it. Thanks for the feedback. And then, uh, yeah, let's get a, get a win on Friday and finish the season out the right way. Great. And we'll come back uh, regardless of the outcome and talk next week. Um, stay on the show, though, listeners. I'm going to talk some recruiting ahead of signing day, but we will let Max go and we will catch him next week. 
All right, let's talk some recruiting. You've seen his name all over Trojansports.com. You've not heard from the Alex Simpson yet on this podcast. Alex joined us in August. He is uh, he's been all over the recruiting scene, uh, really building a foundation with a lot of the 2022 guys, but also helping us finish this 2021 cycle out. Alec, welcome to the podcast for the first time. Thank you for having me, man. It's exciting to be here. Um, obviously, you guys have seen my name on a lot of content. And, you know, Ryan and I have been on the road, you know, in Vegas, Utah, kind of all over the place, you know, checking out some of the top prospects America has to offer and uh, some of the top prospects USC is bringing in this class and hopefully in the next class. So we're, we're looking forward to being on the podcast today. You'll be hearing a lot more from Alec in the future. And obviously, you'll keep seeing his byline on the site. This is a big week. It's it's uh, it's what everything leads to. It's it's early signing period. This is when most of the kids will make their decisions final, and some major storylines for USC. The Trojans, who have been a top five class most of this cycle, dropped number eleven in our rivals' rankings, in part because of just some housekeeping. We we've, we've been telling you for weeks that Quay Davis wasn't going to make it into the class. He's now officially off the commit list. We've been telling you for months that Ma Nateote was not going to make it into the class. He's off the list. That's two four-star guys who come off the ranking. And obviously, Jake Garcia decommits a week and a half ago. So they're down to 11, but there is a path back to a top-five class if they sign these top guys they're still after. And we're going to talk about each one. Let's start with Corey Foreman, Alec. I went out and visited him Saturday in Corona, had an in-depth interview, and he's going to sign Wednesday with somebody, not announced until January 2nd. It's always hit and miss how it goes with keeping it secret. For two weeks, I mean, once you start telling schools, yes, I'm coming to you, or the other schools know that, hey, he didn't sign here this week, he's not coming here, it tends to get out. So we'll see if he can keep it secret. But after watching the interview we did with Corey, what's your gut feel on on Corey Foreman, the five-star, number three overall national prospect? Um, I think things look really good here for USC. Um, USC's kind of really emerged here as of late as a leader. Um, obviously, up up there with Clemson as well. You know, I feel like also ASU's creeping in there as well. You know, the Herm Edwards draw. I, I think Corey Foreman obviously is looking towards the NFL. You know, the number three overall prospect in the country. Um, and he's got a great relationship with the number one overall prospect in the country, Mason Smith. Georgia can't count them out as well. Um, but I think USC definitely looks really good here. Um, Corey Foreman is just a terrific athlete, man. Um, this guy's got, you know, below 10% body fat. You know, he's like 6'5", 265 pounds. He's just an imposing presence, I think, at the defensive line spot. Um, he's just a really strong athlete, um, really physical guy. And you see why when you watch Corey Foreman move, and, you know, move on the line of scrimmage, why he is the number three overall prospect in the country. Um, he's just a really special player, I think, with his size, his, you know, his speed on the line of scrimmage, his ability to, you know, shake off offensive linemen for his size is, you know, it's really special. And, you know, I, I think obviously during this time, this day and age, um, and even when I was getting recruited four or five years ago, guys did sign on the dotted line and, you know, let us know later on down the line where they were ended up, you know, where they were going to sign. So um, here today, still in 2020, it's still the same way. Um, you know, when I was recruiting 2016, now to 2020, it's the same, you know, type of environment here in recruiting. And it's going to be really exciting to see where Corey Foreman ends up signing. Yeah, there's been a lot of twists and turns. Obviously, he was a Clemson commit for a while, decommitted in the spring. At that point, everyone kind of jumped to the USC connection and said, oh, this must mean he's going to USC. And it's just, it, I've tried to stay just kind of even keeled through this whole recruiting story for Corey Foreman because everyone's just swung violently to whatever the current buzz is. When he visited Georgia, everyone goes, oh, Georgia's the favorite now. It's going to be Georgia. And he visits LSU a week later and everyone's like, oh, it's LSU now. And the whole time I've been saying, just 
just wait it out. There's going to be a lot more twists and turns. USC will be in this until the end because his family, I know, would love for him to stay here. I've talked to his dad. doesn't mean that's going to happen. It doesn't mean that's the reason, but that's a major selling point. They would love for him to stay close to home. And when he backed off his Clemson pledge, part of it was there was some apprehension about how's his family going to get to his games across the country every single week. I mean, he loves Clemson, but it's it's 3,000-plus miles away. That's still a factor. So here we are, as I've said the whole time, just see what happens. USC will be in it to the end, and now they are. And the consensus seems to be that it's USC and Clemson. He took a visit to Clemson two weekends ago to just refamiliarize himself with that. I think he's loved Clemson this whole time. I don't think he ever stopped liking Clemson. But it becomes a decision of do you go play for the perennial national power who's always in the championship hunt, who happens to be 3,000 miles away, or do you stay close to home at a USC program that is now showing you, hey, things are trending in the right direction again. They're 5-0. and He likes what he's seen from Tyler Lando in the defense. I think that was the biggest thing that had to happen this fall. He had to see the defense take a step or several steps in the right direction, and he has. I talked to him Saturday. I said, what do you like about what you've seen? And he said, I just love how they get to the quarterback so often. He goes, you're not always going to get the sack or the tackle, but when you're consistently in the backfield and putting yourself in position, that's what I like, and that's kind of been the hallmark of this defense. You mentioned Georgia, Alec. They're they're kind of that wild card right now right. where he – he said he may sneak a visit in Monday, Tuesday. We're talking Monday night. No one knows for sure if he's done that. I think it was probably not going to happen. But if it did, Georgia seemed like a logical place. He probably would have met up with Mason Smith again, the fellow five-star D lineman and his close friend. So you can't discount the Bulldogs at this point. I would never write off LSU totally, but I think the season they've had, the controversies that have arose this year, players looking to leave that program i think they've probably lost their window but i can't say for sure i go into this week thinking it's a usc clemson battle and i feel good about usc definitely but we're we're probably not going to know until january 2nd definitely i agree and uh you know to go back on usc um, we look back at your interview here you did this last weekend, you know, over there at Winter Circle Athletics with Corey Foreman. It was a nine-minute interview. You know, I think the one thing that really stuck out to me, I talked about this on the board with, with at, Trojans, at Trojansports.com. You know, one thing that really stood out for me was that his conversations with Drake Jackson are not recruiting-related. Drake Jackson isn't trying to, you know, reel in Corey Foreman. You know, they have a genuine relationship, and they are really have a genuine bond from when Drake Jackson was a star over there at Cronus Centennial. Um, you know, that bond has lasted the last couple of years now. And from when, you know, Corona Centennial has been a perennial program here in Southern California and in the nation for the last couple of years, you know, that relationship has continued while Drake Jackson has emerged as now a star on USC's defense. But that relationship is not recruiting related. That relationship is very personal. And I think that for Corey Foreman goes a long ways. And, you know, Corey Foreman, it seems to be through his recruitment, he's really about genuine and real relationships. Um, I think that's really going to be the takeaway here in his recruitment is who's really going to treat me like family who's really going to back up their talk during recruiting um is that going to be clemson is that going to be usc and i think that's why the list has dwindled down to those two programs here you know heading close to signing day he's going to sign with one of those on wednesday and it's going to be you know really interesting battle but i think it really comes down to relationships who's the most genuine of the programs yeah it's, it's a great point and um it's not only that he and drake are close their families are super close 
That's always been the major selling point for USC. Obviously, Drake was a senior at Corona Centennial when Corey was a sophomore. That was kind of Corey's breakout year. Drake was kind of a mentor, a friend, everything to him. And as he always says, they were the QB killers. And he said, if, if I go to USC, everyone knows what it's going to be. It's going to be QB killers again. And they'd be on opposite sides. And I think that that has major appeal. And you mentioned relationships that goes to the coaching staff. I thought the most telling comment he had this week was about D-line coach Vic Soto. And he said, I didn't trust Coach Vic at first. And it wasn't about Vic or his personality or, or anything about him. He said, I've just seen so many coaches come and go at USC in recent years. Like, he, he was not going to buy in until he felt, okay, this is real. This guy's going to be here. This is working. And Vic Soto has been maybe the best offseason hire they've made. The defensive line's been the, the shining point of the, of the defense. He's gotten a ton of praise, both from his players, from Clay Helton, from Tyler Lando. So I think that he's really convinced Corey Foreman that he'd be joining something real with what he's building there, and that helps. So I'm confident with USC, but I'm never going to be 100%. Right. And I will not be surprised if we – hear rumblings that oh he's it's going to be Clemson or even if it's going to be Georgia or LSU I I won't be surprised by anything there's been so many twists and turns already but you gotta like what you see with USC okay moving on to really if Foreman's the biggest storyline overall Jackson Dart is the biggest storyline this week because we're actually going to know on Wednesday where he's going Jackson Dart the four-star quarterback from Draper Utah Alec, you and I drove out to Utah to watch him play in the Utah 6A State Championship game. We saw him light it up, finish an unbeaten season, set Utah State record, 67 touchdown passes, 12 more rushing, uh, the state record for total offensive yards. Just a, a dominant dual threat QB who played for a dominant team. He will announce Wednesday morning at 9.15 Pacific time, and it's believed to be between USC and Arizona State and maybe throw UCLA in as, as the third team there. Let's just start with the player. Alec, you saw Jackson live. What? Why is he such a coveted prospect, and why has his stock soared so much this fall? This kid has lit it up through the air for Corner Canyon High School. He's, you know, set multiple Utah State records in one season at, you know, one of the top programs in the state of Utah in Corner Canyon. Um, Coach Kajar over there has really developed this kid into a true power five talent. Um, you know, he's got obviously some great guys around him. You know, I, I think this guy has really developed and really, you know, proven that he's one of the top quarterbacks, not only on the West Coast, but in the country. Um, he's currently rated as one of the top 100 players in the country for Rivals.com. He is a dual threat quarterback. This guy, you know, his another weapon for him is not only his tremendous arm, but this man's got feet, man. He's got legs. This guy can move. Um, he's just an electrifying football player. This kid lights it up through the air, and he lights it up on the ground with his feet. Um, I, think, I just think he's a really special player. He's not only one of the top, you know, quarterback recruits on the West Coast, but in the country. Um, but I just think his stats this year just really lit it up and showed that he has proven to be the top guy and he's ready to work as soon as he gets on campus at a Power 5 program. Um, just watching him in person, um, the one thing that really stood out to me about Jackson Dart is his composure and his patience in the pocket. Um, this yep. kid does not let a lot of pressure really rattle him. You know, and it really reminds me a lot of Keaton Slovis. Keaton Slovis is very calm and, and has, has a really just 
cool, calm, collective demeanor in the pocket. And that's what I see a lot in Jackson Dart. He's just a really calm player. You know, a lot of pressure was coming at him in that state title game, even though they ran away with it with the score. There were a lot of guys coming off the edge. And Jackson Dart did a nice job of relaxing in the pocket, sitting, being patient, going through his progressions, going through his reads, and really making some solid down-the-field throws. Um, there was a really solid throw that I saw from him. He made from even from one side of the hash to a whole other side of the hash about as a 30 yard throw was just a really beautiful down the field throw and i watched that ball and i said that's a power five recruit that's probably one of the top quarterback recruits in the country so you know usc is going after the right guy here in jackson dart after you know one of the top quarterbacks in the country jake garcia decommits this is the guy that usc is going after and usc fans should be excited that they are pursuing this quarterback yeah you make a great point about his poise there were a couple plays where he knew he was going to take a big hit and he stayed in the pocket. He got that throw off, took the hit. And I got to say, that was one of the more physical high school games I've seen in a while. I, was, I don't know that anyone really knows or has an impression of what Utah high school football is about. But in that game, that was a physical, hard-hitting game. And he got drilled in the sternum a few times by staying in and getting those throws off. So, yes, he's a very poised guy. No panic. He, he just He's going to do what he wants to do each play. And when you hear dual-threat quarterback, I think there's a couple of variations. There's the... There's the super, there's the Kyler Murray types that are just super fast and have blazing speed, and, and that's their their attribute. Jackson Dart is a physical dual threat quarterback. Right. He is going to welcome contact. He's going to push through contact. He's not afraid to get hit. He almost invites the hits. He's kind of like a Tim Tebow, just in terms of the running aspect, where you're getting a very physically minded dual threat quarterback, uh, but also a guy that can make all the throws that just seems to have an ease and a a calm about him throughout as far as his recruitment goes obviously everyone knows the story now usc had two four-star quarterbacks committed they had jake garcia who you mentioned Mm -hmm. and miller moss but they couldn't just sit tight because they saw jackson dart and he kind of came on the radar late and they said this guy's too good we can't not recruit this guy he's on the west side of the western side of the country he's so enticing with what he does we're gonna go for it and they had to know the ramifications. They had to know that the likelihood was that they might lose somebody in the process, and they lose Jake Garcia. And Jake Garcia and his dad made no qualms in saying that's the reason they decommitted because they they agreed to a second quarterback in the class, and now USC's going after a third, and they felt whatever way about it, and they were out. And yet USC knew what it was doing, and they wanted Jackson Dart that bad. And now we see Wednesday if they can close the deal. I talked to him on Sunday night for about 10 minutes and uh, talked to him about going to USC two weekends ago just to get in there and look at campus. He brought his whole family. That's always a good sign when not only does a kid take a visit, but he brings mom, dad, siblings. That means you're super serious and you just want to be reassured about what, what you're feeling about a place. So that's a good sign to me. Uh, he didn't go anywhere this last weekend, so he didn't try and go to ASU or anywhere else. Uh, he did see UCLA while he was in L.A., so he saw both schools. But there's a lot of signs pointing to why USC should feel pretty good about things. Again, not a done deal. I have had no one tell me this is definite. He's going to USC. It's, it's become the consensus. I feel good about it. But there's some drama for Wednesday, and it will really set the tone for their entire early signing day. If they lock up Jackson Dart at 9.15 in the morning, then that's a major check mark off the list, and you feel good about a lot of the other pieces. If they don't get him, then the whole storyline becomes, man, you had Jake Garcia 
and you chased them off, and now you have you don't have the two quarterbacks you need. So, to me, Jackson Dart's decision Wednesday morning on ESPN at around nine fifteen Pacific time sets the tone for the whole day. Most definitely, couldn't agree more. Um, I think I think at nine fifteen, all USC fans should really be tuning in to ESPN. Ultimately, I think this recruitment's going to come down to USC and ASU. Um, I think USC, obviously, you said is still UCLA is still in the mix, um, but I think ultimately this is going to come down to you know relationships, what he's really looking for in a school. Um, and I think he's had a really solid relationship with Zach Hill over there at Arizona State for a long time now, and they've really built that rapport, built that relationship. But I think also I think USC is really emerging as the leader here for Dart in the recruitment. He's just developed a really solid relationship with Coach Elton. I remember when you spoke with him earlier when we were over in Utah um, at the state championship game, and his one of his main contacts over there at USC is Coach Elton and Coach Graham Harrell, and they're developing a really solid relationship and a really solid rapport. Um, I wouldn't you know, rule anything out here like you said, but I really think USC definitely is looking like the favorite here. Just to share some more color, I, I was texting with his dad. I happened in the last two weeks, and I, th- I think I, I just checked in last week and just asked him how things were going, and he goes, man, USC is really good at recruiting. Um, because they've been given the full court press to not only Jackson Dart but his family, and that's another reason why I feel good about things. I just know that they put everything into this, and it's the chance to play at USC. It's the chance to be a quarterback at USC, a program that just pumps out NFL QBs. He's going to have another one with Keaton Slovis. Uh, Jackson Dart talked to us about that. He's well aware of that lineage. So we'll see what happens Wednesday. What else are we looking for Wednesday, Alec? We are looking for maybe four-star cornerback Devin Kirkwood, a former UCLA commit, decommitted about a week and a half ago. A lot of signs pointing to USC. He's going to announce Wednesday. What's your read on Devin Kirkwood? And and also, what's your evaluation? You've watched a lot of his film. Definitely. I mean, Devin Kirkwood's a guy that I actually go a little far back with, um, you know, when I was covering UCLA at the time with rivals. Um, Devin Kirkwood's a really good kid. But, you know, besides him being a great young man, um, this kid's a solid cornerback. You know, when I talk about a guy that brings a lot of length and athleticism to the quarterback position, to the cornerback spot, um, Devin Kirkwood is that guy. At 6'4", 185 pounds, this is a very lanky guy. Um, I think he does a great job of man coverage, really just watching the hips of opposing receivers and really just, you know, doing a great job of changing direction and watching the football in the air and, you know, not losing sight of his man as well. Um, you know, this guy in man coverage can cover, man, for a guy his size and his speed and, you know, his length. And he's a really special athlete. Currently rated the number 176 overall athlete nationally. You know, here with Robins.com on our rankings, he's a four-star prospect, and he's the number 16 overall corner. Um, but I think with his length and versatility, I think he could possibly move into that nickel spot in USC's defense. Um, I think he's got a lot of, you know, uh, a width in his frame to be able to add some weight. I mean, he could possibly end up in that nickel spot for USC. I mean, you know, not to rule out this of Devin Kirkwood as well. When you turn on that tape, this is a very physical football player. As as lanky as he is, he makes his physical presence known right away. And he is, you know, just not turning down anybody, man. This is a guy that's willing to make his physical presence known right away. Um, I watched the first play on tape and was amazed. And when I watched the crosser route, Devin, Devin Kirkwood just laid this kid out for like a two-yard tackle. Um, it was just a two-yard gain. And Devin Kirkwood made his presence known right away with a very imposing hit on his opposition. This is a guy that's a very physical player. 
You know, obviously does a great job of man coverage, but I would not rule out his physicality. Um, this is a special athlete. I think USC certainly looks good here after he committed a, you know, just decommitted from UCLA recently. Um, should be really excited to see where he chooses tomorrow. Ryan and myself will be tuning in to his um, online Zoom uh, commitment. We will have updates from Devin Kirkwood um, once he, you know, chooses his college of choice. And, and so people hear that and they say, well, USC has three safeties and two cornerbacks already committed. If they get Devin Kirkwood, that's six DBs. What's that mean for Sierra Wright? And I can tell you that it means nothing, that they still want Sierra Wright, the four-star cornerback from Loyola High School, and they'll take Kirkwood and Wright. It's kind of fluid at this point where they have these remaining spots and they just want the best players available in them. Obviously, there's needs. Defensive line's in need. Linebacker's in need. Uh, they want uh, they still want their wide receiver. There are needs, but if you can get Kirkwood and, and Wright, you don't say no to one of those guys. Right. I think that's kind of the mindset. Sierra Wright is not, is not going to announce his decision until January 2nd. Again, on the All-American Bowl special on NBC. There's no All-American Bowl game this year, unfortunately. But they're having a big TV two-hour special where a lot of the top prospects will still get that spotlight to announce their college choice. I think that Sierra is signing this week. He was kind of vague when I talked to him over the weekend. But we won't know until January 2nd. With him, it's uh, Notre Dame's a big school. He took a recent visit out to South Bend with his family. Uh, there was a lot of buzz coming from that part of the country about they felt very good about the visit, and, and there was a lot of optimism for Notre Dame. There's still a lot of signs point to USC. He wants to be an actor. He's a serious actor. He's, he's going to be in Space Jam too. If you're going to pursue a, a serious career in acting, I think being in L.A. is a lot more advantageous than being in South Bend, Indiana, personally. I know Utah was in the mix for him for a little bit. Michigan's been in the mix. There's some other schools. But it seems to me that it's probably Notre Dame and USC. And I just can't imagine that a guy with his acting track is going to choose to spend three or four years in the middle of Indiana over being in Los Angeles. So, again, I don't know anything for sure on Sierra. I don't think anyone does at this point. But I... I think it's another guy that USC should feel good about. Definitely. Couldn't agree more. And I think the trend I think we need to start to look at now is how great USC has done recruiting defensive backs out of Southern California. Um, obviously, Don, this class, Dante Williams. Dante Williams, man, that's the guy that runs the West. He's trying to take back the West, and I think for good reason. Um, and I think in this this year, um, you know, he's going to bring in some really special athletes and Anthony Beavers, um, Jalen Smith, um, and that could only continue the domino effect with guys like Devin Kirkwood and Sia Wright. You know, this is going to be a really special class. You know, I just really think that USC has done a great job, you know, keeping the best defensive backs in Southern California here at USC. And I think this domino effect is going to continue, is going to roll through. It's going to be really exciting to see where Kirkwood, you know, and, and See you right, end up signing, but I think things are definitely looking good for USC with both of those guys. Well, I'd say they they've got it back on track. Look at last year where they signed no DBs, period. And they they wanted some. They they tried and they struck out. They they had guys like Darian Green Warren who were on the hook uh, and silently committed for a long time, and he flips to Michigan. They couldn't get Elias Ricks off his LSU commitment. So they got no corners, no safeties last year. So it was the focus in this class. That's why you hire Dante Williams. Right. And for, for all the hype that was uh, generated by his hiring, I think he's returned on the expectations 100%, if not more. Because it should be noted that Dante Williams doesn't just recruit uh, cornerbacks. He helps out with, with everything. He, he helps out with 
with SoCal recruiting. He was a major factor in flipping Kyron Ware Hudson, the four-star wide receiver from Oregon. He was a major factor in that. So he gets involved with a lot of other position players, especially with the SoCal guys trying to close the deal. He's been a huge asset. He's a big reason why USC has a chance for a top 10, maybe top five class. Who else is in play Wednesday? The other name out there is Austin Uke, the offensive lineman from Texas who was an FCS commit to Holy Cross. He committed. His recruitment's blown up. Mm-hmm. All the Texas schools are in on him now, TCU, uh, UT. And we've not been able to really get in touch with him the last couple of weeks. So I don't have any read on where that stands. Right. I don't know that that's a major priority. I think that if they were to be able to get traction and get him, it's a nice boost. I have no prediction on Austin Uke. Alec? Definitely. No, I mean, it, it's kind of up in the air with that guy. Um, you know, Uke is obviously really blossomed, you know, from a FCS recruit to now being one of the top power five onside offensive line prospects in the state of Texas. Um, so we should see, you know, kind of what happens with Uke, but it's really going to be up in the air with his recruitment. Um, another guy to really keep an eye on here is Joseph Manjack, wide receiver. Um, you know, this is a guy was a, you know, two-star prospect. He's now a three-star prospect at Rivals, was committed to Washington State, but has since decommitted and is going to be really evaluating all of his options and will be signing in February. Um, this is a recruitment to really keep an eye on, man. Um, you know, this guy brings a lot of swag and a lot of, you know, downfield speed to the wide receiver spot. Um, this is a kid that plays with no gloves and can really catch the football. Um, so he's a really special wide receiver. Um, Joseph Manjack, I think, really does a great job using that second level speed after the catch. I mean, he's just a really elusive wide receiver and a very, you know, explosive playmaker. So I'm really excited to see, you know, kind of what happens with Joseph Manjack's recruitment. Um, but that's certainly another guy to really keep eyes on here yeah the aforementioned guys are the ones that we know about this week there can always be a surprise i remember two years ago on signing day usc got Dijon benton the d tackle from oakland and there had not been an iota of buzz or warning about him and just like we're, we're in the signing day press conference and we see this uh the announcement about uh, Dijon benton and we're like who uh, so there can always be a surprise, especially when you have Dante involved. He's always cooking up surprises. Kyron Ware Hudson was a surprise uh, until like the, the, the day before it happened. So those are the guys we know about. But yes, in February it continues. Titus Mokio out of Malala, the four-star receiver from Hawaii, is still on the radar. Definitely. Um, he's been the hardest guy to read for everybody. And I mean everybody. No one knows where he's leaning Notre Dame was, was big at one point. The thinking has been that since he couldn't take any visits and visits were really important to him and he, he doesn't want to go somewhere he's not familiar with, that USC might have uh, surged back into a good position with him. But his cousins are Palaie Naoteote and Ma'a Naoteote, who are now both headed out of the program. So I don't know if there's going to be any lingering stigma in that regard that drives him to not consider USC, but he is familiar with Los Angeles. He knows this area. He comes here every year to, to see family and train. So he's a guy to watch. I don't think they need both of those guys. I think they just need one, but it, it's all fluid. It depends on what the overall numbers are and where things shake out. And then Ultima Caskill, the, the three-star running back from Oak, from Oak Conroe, Ridge. Texas, Conroe. Yep. I spent a little time in Conroe back in October I talked to Alton McCaskill. He's got a lot of schools after him. I'll be honest with you. I, I don't ever try and, and tell you that I know more than I know. I really don't know where he's leaning right now. He's a guy that we can certainly 
circle back on them, focus on after this early signing period and see where things stand. Uh, if they want a second running back, he would be the guy they're after, most likely. Byron Cardwell is kind of it's kind of seems like he's a, a reach, not a reach, he's a stretch at this point. He's probably looking elsewhere. So ultimate Caskill's the name. Those are the guys we're aware of. Uh, the last three will be February guys. The rest will be this week. But we won't know about Corey Foreman or Sierra Wright until January 2nd. If they get all of their top targets, the guys we've just mentioned, this is a top five class by my calculations. If they get a few of them, I think it's probably a, a pretty safe bet they'll be a top 10 class which is a major, major improvement from last year when they ended up in the 70s, ultimately. So things have turned around, trending in the right direction, and it'll be a fun week. Yes, sir. Most definitely. Couldn't agree more. Okay, uh, well, Alec and I will have a ton of coverage on Trojansports.com. Make sure you're on the site. We have a new promo. It's a free trial. It's tied to the signing period. It is promo code USC. NSD for National Signing Day. USC, NSD, get a free trial through the end of January. Take advantage and read our exclusive interviews with Corey Foreman, with Sierra Wright, with Jackson Dart. Read uh, all the analysis and breakdowns that Alex is going to have on Wednesday. be a fun week to be on the site. Yes, sir. All right. Until next time, as always, thank you for listening to the Trojan Talk podcast. Thank you for having me.